what do you wish you knew before starting this podcast? I don't know. I mean, I feel like we've had quite a smooth ride so far. I suppose editing, if you want it to be like 100%, it takes a long time. But apart from that, I mean, our guests have been fab. It's all been good. Is there anything you've learned or wish you had known? I think um, what I've learned, maybe not from this podcast, but just like from working in podcasts like overall, is the importance of having of a podcast having a purpose because I think especially in lockdown like everyone's having podcasts which is great and it makes sense I don't think there's actually anything wrong with that I think it's great when people have creative outlet and you know try and structure their days and create projects at a time when everything else seems to be taken away from us but I think a lot of the time people don't understand and I've made the same mistake and I'm sure I'll continue to make the same mistakes but like we kind of forget that a podcast needs to have a clear purpose Mm. and it needs have a kind of clear yeah a clear structure a clear narrative a clear point to it I find it hard to find a podcast like I know you've got your long list of podcasts you listen yeah. to, listen to <laughs> but I just like the, the market is so saturated there's so many podcasts out there there could be like the perfect one for me but how do I find it I know well all the ones I've discovered have been I mean all my kind of newsy ones I mean that's just for my own personal interests and that's just been through reading or like word of mouth or something in those outlets but just the general ones that are like a bit more relaxing um have been through word of mouth have been through like people I trust them knowing me and my interests and recommending them to me and if I feel like you know it's you know I get them to describe it to me in like 20 seconds you need to make a podcast relatable to your audience and also make it relatable to your audience that you need to know your audience. So yeah, I think I wish I kind of like thought of at least in a bit more depth about that, but we wouldn't be here today and I've learned along the way. And I think we've got, we've got our purpose. In I mind. feel like making mistakes is the best way to learn anyway. So it's good. You got yeah. them out of the way <laughs> before you made this podcast. <laughs> hopefully we'll get some tips from our next guest on the podcast this week because he worked um for bbc sounds podcasts which is incredible but not only that he has worked in some exciting and pretty cool roles so he was once a bbc radio one presenter and is now i know and now is currently a digital development producer at channel four yeah i'm officially talentless i've decided Hi, I'm Olivia Wilson. And I'm Rachel O'Neill. And this is Media Rookies, a podcast that aims to ask all the media questions you're dying to know the answers to. And on the podcast this week, we're joined by former BBC Radio 1 presenter, now digital development producer at Channel 4, Ali McRae. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, I suppose let's start at the beginning. How did your media journey begin and what were the biggest obstacles for you trying to get in? Oh, good question. Uh, Thank you for having me, first of all. Um, I I love talking about stuff like this. Uh, It's good fun because no two stories are the same and mine is pretty, you know, it might give you whiplash in terms of what people would call like an ordinary career because I've had so many different (laughs) false starts and amazing luck and things gone totally wrong and things gone totally right. So um, I was really lucky to go to university in Stirling, um, not that far away from where I'm from in Glasgow. And there I started studying philosophy, which didn't last very long because I found the student radio station, which was really cool. Um, With sort of by my second year, I was running that with a friend. 
uh, and the whole way through uni, that was kind of like uh, that took you know ninety percent of my energies and then ten percent on my actual degree. Meeting people, setting up um, like conferences about student radio, working with the nationwide student radio association, um, and just getting to know loads of people and doing really fun things, both in radio and in music. So when I graduated, me and my friend left and I moved back to Glasgow and was basically just like trying to figure out how on earth I was would get a job in the media. I was working full time in an excellent restaurant called The Filling Station on Bath Street in Glasgow. Oh yeah. Um, but RIP, it's not there anymore. Oh, it's um, been shut so down, oh. Yeah, I think it turned into a World Buffy King and then it shut down, but loved it there and that was great. And But yeah, I'd, I'd done that for years and I was quite happy doing that, but I, I definitely had aspirations of working in media and doing different things. And me and my friend started a club. Well, our idea was to start like a gig night in a bar called Bar Block. Um, so we're talking like 2010 here. So ages ago um and it was like this makes me sound so old but it was when youtube wasn't as big a thing as it is now <laughs> which is almost laughable saying that out loud um but it's true 11 years ago and you know it was still pretty big but it wasn't like as omnipresent and as part of culture as it is now and our thing was okay we want to put on sort of younger scottish bands because we've been doing that in the student radio but we had to do something to get people to care because there were thousands of gig nights and loads of different genres and all that. And we just started a little YouTube channel where we got friends who had graduated or done HNDs in, in, in filmmaking or knew how to use a camera or knew how to hold a phone with really, really pixelated, whatever it would have been, three megabit sort of pixel photos back in the day. And yeah, we made some little videos for this YouTube channel initially to promote the gig. But then they became kind of bigger than the gigs because the venue only held like 50 people. Um, and we'd basically film a session with a band, but in a weird place. And then we would premiere that on a dodgy projector in the club, but nobody would watch because they were totally drunk. Uh, and then the band would play at like midnight and it just became like a thing. We did about maybe two years of solid monthly shows. And to like, but I was still working away. And I was doing kind of bits and bobs working for a production company, just thinking about maybe going freelance. And then almost out of the blue, um, I was approached by Radio 1 to come and demo, um, which, yes, shocked face. Because <laughs> obviously I knew about that, but I just thought there'd be more of a kind of linear or like, like, I don't know, that just sounds really kind of like, oh, and then I randomly got poached. Like, I just thought that happened in films. I wasn't expecting that story. I wasn't expecting it to get that. <laughs> I thought we were reaching a point where then, then there would be like a, you'd meet I someone. That led you onto that. <laughs> totally. Well, I suppose if I backtrack a little bit, I'd got to know Vic Galloway, who was presenting BBC Introducing in Scotland, and his producer, Muslim Aleem, through the student radio. I just begged them and pestered them to come and talk and teach the maybe 10 people that actually cared about student radio to come and teach it. And I just kind of kept in touch with them. And I think for maybe three months when I was still at uni, there was, an eight, there was a section of the BBC Introducing show then which I eventually ended up presenting, uh, which was like the student radio takeover. And about, I think, twice in one year, we made a little package about drum and bass and Sterling or punk rock and Falkirk or something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but we did little packages. Um, and I guess I just kind of kept in touch for the two years after uni. And then because I'd started this gig night thing, that, I guess, kept 
um, kept was a reason for me to keep in touch with them, and I think I got invited on the show to maybe come and chat about it once to promo it. Um, so it was a little more than yeah. call from an unknown number. I was like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But I think it was still a total shock to me because I'd just been doing my own thing and I was just like, this'll this'll probably fizzle out and it's great fun and we're having loads of parties essentially. Um and it didn't. It turned into something that became a job for four years, five years of my life. Um so first of all I was doing BBC Introducing in Scotland, then three months in, it was announced that that was getting scrapped by the BBC. And then there was this weird campaign that started and then it got saved. So I'd been there for three months, thought that was a cool work experience. It got scrapped. Then it got saved and I got a phone call saying, yeah, we're going to save it by combining it with all the regions because at the time it was a regional show and we're going to put you on actual Radio 1 weekly. And then my mind was completely blown. (laughs) Total, total chance, total luck, but also with a lot of hard work in getting myself into the right place to be found, I suppose is one way to look at it. But utter luck, utter privilege to be able to just be in that right place at that right time when someone who'd been doing the show for a decade was ready to move on, that I was there in that moment. Had that been two years later, I would have been old news. Had that been two years earlier, it wouldn't have happened. It's just luck. But who knows where I would have gone. Uh, and to go really quickly through what happened after that, I, halfway through being a Radio 1 DJ, I'd started managing an artist, uh, a couple of guys who called themselves Prides. They were signed to Island Records. I then managed them for three years uh, and moved to London and that was my full-time job because things went pretty pretty well with them, by which time Radio 1 had decided once again to scrap BBC Introducing and I was like, okay, bye, we're out here. So the show was totally cancelled. Oh my gosh. Uh, it's just a roller coaster of stuff and I think that sort of thing happens now, but so much faster. Shows will be scrapped after a year. Things will be only commissioned for like 12 months, six months, um, but thankfully... In the last wee while. Why is that? That is a good question. Um, maybe we'll get onto that momentarily. I'm not entirely sure. I think it's because, I guess, culture has accelerated would be the really um, vice way to say it. Like, things have moved so fast and there is so much competition coming so much faster. A radio show about new music really late at night is not the only place that people... It's rarely the place people outside of the industry are getting their new music, you know, I mean, recently, if, if if anyone's interested in Radio radio One's movements, you know, recently, Hugh Stevens, who's been there for 25 years, has moved on now. And Phil Taggart, who'd been there a similar length of time as I'd been there, but kept going until this year, left the station. So things do evolve and change faster. And Radio One have an amazing um, Christmas project where they get sort of 12 or 15 new presenters on air for a week. Yeah. 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 And see, that's so funny that you there's so much uncertainty. Like Radio One is like the holy grail for radio presenters. That is the goal. And to hear you say that even once you get a show, you could be off like the next month. Like did it always feel did you always feel like you're on edge and kind of like always in this zone of uncertainty? Probably yes, but that was probably due to my own insecurity more than anything else, because I never really I guess obviously the dream when I was a wee boy was oh yeah I'd love to be a radio presenter but I never really thought I would and then when I got there you know you're kind of being pushed by people who are sort of higher up the bosses at Radio 1 kind of go well if you want to be here for ages you've got to do this that and the other thing and I was like I don't really want to be a Greg James that's not really me like I've always seen myself behind the scenes I have definitely not got that in my repertoire to start telling funny wee stories or whatever I'm, I'm like in nice and sleazy at two o'clock in the morning watching some weird electro band that was where i was so then 
if I looked at the places for someone like that at Radio 1, that's way narrower because there's even less specialist music. So from day one, I'd kind of put my flag in the sand that going, well, that's what I want to be. Maybe when I'm 40, I'll get a chance at six music if I'm lucky enough to last that long. But even six music presenters will be worrying because there'll be a whole new generation of people coming behind them. So yeah, I it, I did the radio one stuff. I'll, I'll quickly blast through all the things I've done because I've had lots of crazy jobs, and then we'll get we'll get we'll get that over and done with. Um, so radio one, I left radio one. By that time, I was managing a bank called Pride. Then spent this amazing three years with them, where uh, I was looking after them, and we toured the world. Got a debut album out. They played Glastonbury. They got a top twenty record. Um, we sold out like the ABC in Glasgow. RIP. Uh, we toured America with them. Um, they signed a publishing deal, which is a big stage in songwriters' career. Um, and I learned how to manage an artist. I still don't entirely know how to do it, but. I don't think anybody really does and anyone that says they do is lying because it changes daily. Um, So that became my job and then I'd moved to London and I started doing a consultancy for a kind of music industry publishing job as well. And then me and my friend sort of joint forces as managers because being a manager is a really weird, self-employed, totally financially terrifying situation because you may sign a deal but then there won't be any more income for the next year and a half, which is insane. And the cash flow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I couldn't do that. Gosh. I barely could. So I had to, I have to have lots of other jobs at the same time. So sort of working a wee bit of music publishing. I was doing a little bit of PR. And then my friend Lindsay Boggis, who's an incredibly talented human who's now really high up in the events team at Apple Music in the UK. We started a kind of management company together where we took on a few younger acts and to balance out the chaos of trying to make money as a manager because you're only making a percentage of what the artist makes which is nothing until they become like daytime radio one famous which is impossible to get to we started doing a bit of radio pr because we knew everybody so i was then going into radio one and selling other artists and being employed to do that um because of all those connections i had which was excellent but it didn't feel weird even though that sounds pretty strange because I was just talking to all the presenters about music that they knew I liked because I'd probably played it on the radio three years previous um and then I did that for a couple of years and then in 2017 um I applied for a job back in Glasgow with essentially with BBC The Social which is an amazing platform for new talent in Scotland which had really grown within the BBC and was really unique for the BBC in that they weren't just going hey, let's make some content for young people. They were going to young people who were already very much creating their own content and did not need the BBC. And the bosses that sort of established that and started that, three amazing people, Louise, Anthony and Muslim, um, who all still work for the BBC in really quite high-profile positions, they managed to find a mechanism to allow um, BBC producers to help young content creators. And each content creator got paid for making something and then it was put out on this platform that grew and grew and grew and you know it's got like I can't even remember the numbers now uh, half a million followers on Facebook and they got some videos totally blew up that got like 50 60 million views um and then that grew that department grew into like projects for BBC3 to make many documentaries and making podcasts for BBC Sounds and I basically just applied like anyone else even though I'd been a presenter I'd been a music manager I had my own PR company uh, as a producer in that team and I luckily got that job because of my experience of wrangling weird situations that you have to do in music and the creativity and knowledge of digital channels that you need when you're managing an artist to do that all day that was exactly what we were looking for and I think the other thing was the ability to be able to talk to young content creators and be like yo what's up 
you want to make something together? And make it very clear from the start that this was not them getting their own Radio 1 show at midnight for the next five years. It's just a, we're going to make a video together, you're going to get £100, it might get zero views, or it might get £50 million. Let's give it a bash. So very clear, like, simple negotiation, I guess. So I did that for three years, which was amazing, and we worked on different projects. The BBC Three one was fantastic, because that was about finding young creators across the whole of the UK, um, and then making almost like mini documentaries for their YouTube channel. So learning about the process of, I guess, documentary making and sort of story arcs and finding the beats of things to keep people interested and then putting a video out and seeing that, oh, everybody dropped off viewing at three minutes in. Why was that? And it's because I put in something that was of no context of what someone thought they were wanting. So learning all those skills. Um, and then we started a podcast version of that, which was amazing and given yet more opportunities. We did a show called Original Pilot Material which was 20 one-off podcasts. And you guys know, because this is a podcast, you know all about podcasts. A podcast has to have a single brand and some consistent presenters, such as you have on this podcast. And then like, you'll know what you're getting as it grows and grows and grows. But what we'd done was, because we were trying to get as many people as possible, uh, it was it was totally chaotic. So we, d- we did that. That lasted for a year, which was a great commission to do. And people did some amazing work. Uh, But then we pitched to BBC Sounds internally an idea called the Love Hate Club, which was aimed at younger female audience in Scotland specifically, which BBC Sounds had identified in the research that they were not doing anything for. Um, And we were really proud of that. We pitched it. We we, we sort of pitched the the, the two hosts, which was Cassie and Roisin, who are brilliant. Um, And we got some really funny, strange guests and it kind of grew a nice life of its own. It's so difficult to break through with a podcast, even if you are the BBC or you are Spotify, to actually connect with people. It takes time, it takes repetition. And the key one that gets anyone interested in podcasts is word of mouth. Have you heard that thing where that Peter Crouch podcast is the biggest podcast by far? Because that's tapping into an audience, football, which is massive in the UK. And then they're getting something really different that doesn't exist elsewhere. So, But I don't think anyone expected that to go so big. Probably if that hadn't gone so big in the first series, it probably wouldn't, you know. Um, so I think you're right in your, your point that it's got to be, right now there's a trend for going huge talent. But I think that's just out of necessity because people are seeing that working. But the BBC has a remit to help encourage new talent as well, which is why platforms like BBC The Social are amazing, because they are actually nurturing that through, and that's part of the public service remit that why the BBC exists. So, yeah, I think it's hard, and it always levels out. These things happen, and a new boss comes in, and a sweeping change will happen, then another new boss will come in, and a sweeping change will happen, and it's about trying to keep your eye on those changes by reading kind of media news and listening to different podcasts and kind of to try and keep ahead of that and see if there's an opportunity for you personally to get involved in it and stuff and you know since we have you here and if anyone is listening and wants to maybe start their own podcast i mean from your experience what do you think the best way to go about it is and how do you kind of break through a very saturated market the best best advice i can give is there is a book called make noise by a guy called eric newsom 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 um do it make noise get it ever it is the bible of podcast making Honestly, um, a very, very, very smart, intelligent podcast commissioner told me to read that when I was making a podcast and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's literally telling me how to do it. Eric Newsom's a like kind of legendary figure in US podcasting 
Uh, he worked for NPR. I think he started Invisibilia and did loads of those big, amazing American podcasts. It is the book in how to make a podcast. And it pretty much, I, no advice I could give you would be anywhere near how good that book is. Noted. Like, great, good. Everyone should get it. Um, but the one thing I will say that's probably stuck in my brain from that book is like have a point for doing a podcast. Don't be worried about the fact that it's not the most innovative one because it's almost impossible to find an idea that's not been done before just do it for the reasons that you want to do it make those reasons clear and try and think about a potential audience and that might be 50 people in your community who really care about the what's going on on this street podcast or whatever it is but then you've got a captive audience don't think about getting 20,000 listeners think about how you're going to get 20 regularly and then grow it and then grow it because without that bedrock and it's the same for musicians it's the same for youtubers it's the same for any kind of content you need to think about a attainable group of people at first and that's probably going to be your mates and get them shouting about it and then it's about thinking right what avenues have i got if this is you know this is a podcast about media and breaking into media so you've got loads of outlets once you've got your rhythm and you've got your guests and things are going and you've got a nice loyal listenership then you can start reaching out to places that matter about it and then simple marketing it's like well let's go to every uni that's got a media degree boom how do i connect with them let's go to different trade bodies for helping people getting into media go to them speak to them and then it's just a kind of marketing job and um, but the biggest piece of advice is it's so much work so much work to do a podcast right the recording it is hard work the editing so it can take a while or you can just knock it out but maintaining a presence on social media is yeah. so difficult and time-consuming. Because yeah. you're balancing your own one as well, and then you've got this podcast on top of it, and you're like, I can barely post on my own Instagram. Totally. And I think, again, that's about setting boundaries of like, okay, I can actually, in my working life, find time to do this once a week. I'll do the podcast, and I'll maybe only be able to do three tweets or three Instagram posts. Cool. That's all I'm doing. Or can it only be one a week or one podcast a month? Whatever you do, set that out at the start and remain consistent with that is kind of important because that consistency is what audiences expect. Like I choose my podcast based on going for a long run on a Sunday and I won't look through the week until I go and go, oh, great, they've got a new episode. If I go for a quick run on like a Wednesday lunchtime, I know I can listen to like a wee 20 minute one, so I know the types of podcasts. So if, if you're a podcast and one week you're 20 minutes, the next week you're three hours long, that does my nothing because I don't, I don't know where I am with you, you know, so, but everybody's different. So it's like thinking about your audience and everything you do, think about that person that you have decided is your audience. Mm, that's a really start. good point actually because I do I do that exact same thing and I think sometimes we think we're living in our heads and like no one mm. else is thinking the way that we're thinking but it's interesting you said that because yeah, if I'm like, Going, if I'm walking to work, um, which I usually do, I'm like, okay, right, um, what out of my half an hour podcast, which doesn't exactly narrow it down because I have quite a mm. few like on my favourites to select, but I know it's like one of my regulars that I'll click on to listen depending on what my mood is. Um, but yeah, if I'm just like, you know, popping to the shops or like, you know, going around the corner to get bits and bobs, then it's like a, a shorter one, one that's a bit more relaxed and not doesn't need much concentration. So I think that's a really good point, actually. Um, to bear in mind I think it's mistakes I've made in the past when I've done like kind of ad hoc podcasts and different timings and things like that it's stuff we don't actually think about or realize we're thinking what uh what are you listening to right now off the top of your head so off the top of my head it's newscast today in mm. focus um the those are probably my top two I really like um 
the Grown Up Club. Oh, I've not heard that. Yeah, no, my friend recommended it to me, and she it's I recommend it. It's really good. Like I scrolled all the way back to episode one though, because I think nice. I think it's with Radio Four, and they've done it like they're on like episode fifty or something. But it's just really nice and relaxed, and it's basically a bunch of adults talking about how they feel like adults. And I'm turning twenty five. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, I'm turning twenty five tomorrow, and I was like, <laughs> I need this. I need for tomorrow. This. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, those are, those awesome. ones are at the moment but i i i i'm constantly listening to podcasts like um you know the uh, uh brenda francis white one what's it the feminist i've literally forgotten what it's called but i used to listen Gil- to that. guilty feminist guilty feminist yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's that's shocking that i forgot what it was called <laughs> <laughs> making note of all of these um so yeah ali kind of moving to now that you're at channel four uh, tell us about how you got that job and yeah how it came about so that was again it was an application process um as most ones like when i when i applied for my bbc job at the age of 28 no couldn't been that long 2017 i can't remember i'm 33 now i can't remember uh late 20s let's put it that way uh that was the first job interview i'd ever gone for which is an insane thing to say because i'd i think when i worked in a restaurant it had just been a mate of a mate and then the radio one thing happened and then I had my own company. I was basically self-employed for nine years. So going into the having to write a CV world was terrifying as someone who was a bit older and probably expected to have those skills to do that. So that was a little strange. Um, but no, I saw the Channel 4 thing come up. The BBC is going through a pretty tough time at the moment in terms of having to save a lot of money, um, probably unprecedented in its in its time. And I was only ever working kind of contract to contract with the BBC. So it was kind of six month contract, six month contract. Um, and the time of my life, I was like, Do you know what, I think I kind of want to make a move for, for something a bit more permanent. And I saw this role at Channel 4 coming up and I applied to be the digital, I should know this, it's my job, the digital <laughs> the digital development producer in a new area of Channel 4 called 4 Studio, which to give a really quick bit of context is Channel 4 traditionally when it was set up uh, never makes any of its own content for TV. It is there to commission independent companies and to help the independent market Make so everything you see on Channel Four, including the news, which is made by ITN, is made by another company. Oh, I had um, no idea about that. Yeah, wow. But that is not true of digital, which is the world that I work in. So this brand new team in Channel Four has been launched, and it launched. I think it was sort of early twenty twenty. Great year to start a huge new broadcast changing type of the organization it's part of the entire strategy of the whole organization and four studios plan is to make its own digital in-house content and work with advertisers and my job is literally to come up with ideas for digital series and digital formats that we can grow and put on channel four's youtube um facebook snap tiktok that sort of stuff and the first thing we did was a kind of I guess it was exclusively to digital channels, but a partner companion show to It's a Sin, the drama that's just launched. Oh my gosh, I love It's a Sin. Which is amazing. Have you seen it? Incri- I binge watched it. I cried. It so heartbreaking. And laughed and I'm not ready to cry this much. Like, no, I've no, heard it's no. heartbreaking. I'm not ready. Wait, no, that's quite right. You need to see it. Like, it's <laughs> the most incredible piece of television. It's it's unbelievable. I would say that it's amazing. But we, as a team, were commissioned to make a after show for it. So the kind of chat format that you used to see after Walking Dead, 
Yeah. So that, that's what I've spent the last two months working on. It's been no, quite intense. Yeah. Oh, amazing. So it's good. So we've got the whole cast. We managed to get Jade from Little Mix on it. We've got Ollie. We've got Stephen Fry. We've got Neil Patrick Harris. Um, and it's doing pretty well on YouTube. And it was one of these things. It's a first for Four Studio. We released a press release about it. And that was really quick turnaround. We commissioned it. Uh, an independent production company made it for us because we're not really staffed up yet ready to make these things but we kind of came up with the format and, and, and thought about the guests and knew what we wanted it to be and it's, it's doing pretty well in terms of views but that's only piggybacking on the wild success of this incredible drama so I was really lucky to walk into my first role to uh, work on that which is great so now my real job is thinking of completely original things and the key thing is looking at the data that we've got because we have you know there's like two million followers on Facebook, there's about a million on YouTube, so it's about looking at that and going, right, what do they like? What are the, 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 the and we've got an incredible strategy team and some amazing analysts to look at the numbers and look at the data and go, right, how, we should make something like this, we should make something like that, because we know Married at First Sight Australia works, so what is it about Married at First Sight Australia clips that people love? Oh, it's drama, oh, it's fighting, okay, right. What? I'm not saying we're going to come up with people fighting as yeah, a, as a YouTube series, I've ironically you got that on pause right now. It's so addictive. I was literally about to say your name, Rach. I was like, I know, <laughs> like, something. I'm like three episodes behind. Don't, don't, but it's it's so trash, but it's so brilliant. I love it, and you need that. You need that in your life to just escape. And the accents are great. <laughs> it's the best thing. It's brilliant. I'd also call that a brilliant piece of TV as well. I would agree. I would agree. So our, our our kind of role is to look at it and go, how do we make that work on the internet if you've not watched the series? How can we take those clips? And again, there's a huge team of producers who are brilliant at doing that and sort of chopping it up and doing all that stuff. So yeah, I've got quite a strange role within Channel 4, but it's amazing to, to have that space to work with people. And you know, the, one of the producers came to me with an idea, a wee, a wee flake of an idea the other day, and we've now turned it into one sheet. We've spoken to someone about it and I'm going to try and get that commissioned quite soon so that's kind of what it's about is is your day essentially just kind of like coming up with ideas and developing them and then if so how like how do you get inspired because you, i suppose you can't it's not like a job where you're like okay i do x y and z on this computer you can't just decide like i'm going to be inspired and creative and <laughs> ideas are going to really engage the audience i'm just going to come up with it or maybe it does maybe you are that talented no I, absolutely not i'm like i'm like I, the way i look at it is more about starting things and there are commissioners in Channel 4, the people with the money who decide what gets made, and they're getting pitched by the independent companies all the time, and I've got to be held to the same standards. So it's more about going, right, here's, here's a bit of an idea, or someone in the team might be really passionate about one area. And I go, right, how are we actually going to make this? What is this actually going to be? Because everybody, it's easy to come up with ideas. Not easy, but everybody can come up with ideas, but it's about coming up with the right idea based on what we're looking for. So if it's E4, it's for a much younger audience. So already you're right down to, okay, what are younger audiences loving right now? I speak to the analysts. I spend a lot of time on YouTube watching things that are doing well and trying to tease out what it is that's making those successful, you know, what's been engaging. Um, the strategists are kind of doing a lot of work um, in what's called social listening so you know that's almost compiling and uh, all big companies do this all big brands do this when they're trying to work out who their audiences are and actually once you start drilling down to it it does become very formulaic and it does become quite uh, I guess what would you call it like you, you are ticking things off your to-do list and it's like right okay 
there's a young audience. What are these young audiences? What what have we got that hits young audiences? Okay, we have a Married at First Sight Australia. What would that be? Like, we don't need another one of them. So what is it that we could do that would be different in the dating world? What would be... To- but we know celebrity works. We know that drama works. But then, so we basically start, and it's because we're such a sort of new department. I've been involved in actually writing what the criteria is for what we should make. Because we can't just suddenly go off and make wildlife shows because we've got no license to do that. That's not really what we're here for. You know, it's it's about identifying what the Channel 4 audience, the people that follow us, they definitely like a certain thing and like a certain style. So already we can't just shoot off doing loads of music content on the main Channel 4 account because that's not what people are used to. They're used to in-betweeners clips and Derry Girls and all that stuff. So it's like, okay, how do we find ideas <laughs> exactly? Looking at what the market's doing, looking at what young people like, looking at what our audience likes and then trying to find something out of that. <laughs> yeah, Which is difficult. And for someone maybe like aspiring to get into the same line of work you're in, like mm. producing, working in digital, a lot of this you need experience. I mean, what's the best way to go about getting this experience or what's the best way to get your foot in the door? Where possible is start making stuff on your own. Um, if if it, not everybody has access to a phone, but the majority of people do, and the amount of stuff you can film, it's not about the quality. You do not need to go and spend two grand on a Sony A7S or whatever, because you basically got it on here. Uh, having really expensive expensive kit and all that is useless if you don't have a good format and a good idea. Um, I wouldn't have got anywhere near Radio One a decade ago if I hadn't just started doing something with new music and putting bands on YouTube. And the same has kind of gone the whole way through my career. I wouldn't have been, I didn't need any degree or anything to start managing a band. That was just knowing people and connecting with people and being being involved in different things. So you never know where it's going to come. I think I've never thought anything I work on is going to be a success, which I think helps you go, okay, you don't get like freaked out by going, oh, if this is a failure, it's all over. If you start and think, oh, I'll just give this a go and see where it leads. It might, your first podcast is probably not going to be the one that gets you a job or makes you successful, but your second or your third might. Same with the first act you manage, same with the first project you work on, first video you make on YouTube, that takes so long. And I think what's, I've always found, I've, I've jumped from working completely independently to working very much for big traditional broadcasters and institutions. And that comes with its whole load of baggage that you don't have if you're just a YouTuber doing something on your own, creatively, creatively, not financially. It's very different. (laughs) Well, I think that's a great way to finish off the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. Stay updated on our social media pages. Just search Media Rookies on Twitter and Instagram. This podcast was an original creation by Rachel O'Neill and Olivia Wilson. With special thanks to Olivia Akis, who created the artwork for this podcast.